Hi, I'm Jim Bixby from Clifton Lutheran Church in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and you're listening to Two Bald Pastors Podcast, connecting real faith with real life. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today we welcome Pastor Angel Marrero. He is the pastor mission developer of Sanctuario in Waltham, Massachusetts. Welcome, Angel. Thank you so much for having me here and for the opportunity of having a conversation about ministry, about stories, and especially about the intersection of faith and life. We're very excited to have you on and know you have a story that you like to share with the church. Um, And I guess if it's all right, we'll just kind of start with that. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your call to ministry? How did you end up where you are now? I am like a weird duck. And I was, I was called to ministry at a very young age. I was seven years old the first time I served in my church as an acolyte. And I say I'm a weird dog because I grew up in an overwhelmingly Roman Catholic country, yet I have only been a Lutheran. I'm a cradle Lutheran. Um, so when I see all those memes about decolonized Lutheranism and, ha- and not having jello after church, I really feel very identified with it. Yeah, sure. And I remember after church, my pastor, uh, we were in the sacristy taking our robes off, and he said, so what do you think? Do you like the experience? And all those things we pastors ask little kids. And, he, and I, from my mouth, I just said, I want to be a pastor. Now, at the time, I wanted to be a pastor and a professional wrestler, which <laughs> now that I think about it, it could have been a great idea. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, the gym was never my thing, so it could never work out. Then I wanted to be a pastor and a lawyer, which really didn't work out either because, you know, I uh, I like reading, but not that much. So so eventually I went to college, became a teacher, and there is a big tradition in Puerto Rico of clergy being educated at the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia. So when the time came, it was just a natural decision um, for me. I also came to the pipeline, so uh, being a pastor is... Uh, one of my first jobs, uh, I went from college to seminary immediately, and since April of last year, I've been ordained here in the New England Senate. And that is at great length um, what my call story um, is, of course, throughout the time. Uh, one of the things that has been very important to me has been the support of the church. Having the LYO when I was a teenager going to camp in Puerto Rico and having great leaders um, there supporting me. Women clergy. I always had women pastors throughout um, my younger years. I uh, I had never uh, been pastored by a man, and um, I'm thankful for their ministry and for the openness um, they showed to the Spirit. Um, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Synod, that when times were difficult for me with candidates in the Caribbean Synod, um, they welcomed me and welcomed me without knowing me and trust that the Spirit was leading the process. First Lutheran Church in Waltham that welcomed me as an intern, an openly gay and married intern at the time, and, and their first intern person of color in a congregation that's primarily white. 
lots of partners in the process. I'm excited to hear that you've had such um, a willingness by others that have welcomed you. I know a lot of people don't have that experience if they're not white nor heterosexual. Uh, that just seems to be such a, a dominant voice in our in our church as we're learning to be more inclusive. Uh, can you share a little bit about how that was for you? Uh, how old were you in 2009 when those decisions were, were made to be become a more inclusive uh, church as the ELCA? I was 19 years old in 2009 and still struggling a lot with my sexuality. I did not came out of the closet until I was uh, in seminary. Uh-huh. Um, part of it because I didn't feel safe in Puerto Rico. Sure. I did not feel safe professionally, and I did not say, felt that the church was totally a safe space for me at the time. I remember the church-wide assembly in 2007. I participated in that church-wide assembly as a thing that I don't know if it still exists. It's called the Youth Combo. They take youth from all different synods and kind of like we witnessed the assembly. And as I was there, they were giving away rainbow stoles. And at the time I was deeply in the closet and I was uh, highly homophobic. Mm. And I remember entering the the Good Soil, the, the organization was called Good Soil and they had prepared this big room with stoles hanging in the walls. It was in a ballroom in the hotel. And each stall had the story of an ordained ministry in our minister in our tradition that had been defrocted because of sexual orientation. That year, the ELCA was celebrating its 20-year um, banquet, and I decided instead of going to the banquet to go to the service they were doing because there was something that the Spirit was moving inside of me. And I, I was not willing yet to admit that what the Spirit was moving inside of me was the possibility that I could truly be myself mm-hmm. and live my vocation publicly. Right. And when I went there, Margaret Payne, the former bishop of the New England Center, was presiding, and I was just in awe. A bishop in the ELCA was presiding a worship full of LGBTQ clergy. And I felt the Holy Spirit in that service. I felt it in the preaching by Bradley Schmeling, who had just been defrocted from our tradition. And let me tell you, if to me the question came down to should a person like Bradley Schmeling be preaching? And after hearing and listening to his words, after seeing him worship, of course he should be. And if the Spirit is calling him, then who who was I or who is the church um, to be in the middle of all that, to be to oppose it? And to me that was also an opportunity for healing. For that was that day I began the process of coming out. That did not end until 2011 when I finally came out. But that was the time that I, that I identify as that, as that coming out experience. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit moves, and you never know when you are leading worship or participating in worship when the Spirit is going to take place and who is it going to touch and how it's really going to change someone's life. And it's amazing to hear how your life was changed because— of the words and actions of, of a few people in the context of worship. And, you know, I like to call myself, I, I draw this word from my friend Leila Ortiz, I like to call myself a Luther Costal, Luther which Dan. is that I'm deep, I am deeply Lutheran in my theology, yet I believe in the Spirit and the word that the Spirit does in the world in our midst. I, uh, one of the most powerful experiences that I lived at that assembly, they were giving away rainbow stoles. 
And I remember picking one up and I was wearing it with trembling because that meant that I had taken a position about this mm -hmm. issue of justice. And uh, my stall, which I still have in my office, had a little tag that said, made by Mary Ann Mason, the mother of Jenny Mason. And as I sat down in worship, I, a pastor sat by my side and we were talking. And finally, when, when the time is, comes to say goodbye, I say, well, my name is Angel, and she said, I am Jenny Mason. And uh, she did not know I was wearing the stole that her mother made. I did not know who she was at the time. But to me, that was in the very soft voice, like the first reading said this past Sunday, the very soft voice of God, calling and drawing me to something new, to, to possibilities. Yeah, yeah. So, so just to stick with that, so um, in 2011, you went public with who you are. Yep. And how did that affect where you were in your vocational discernment and, and the process within um, the ordination track? At that time, I was still um, not in candidacy. And when I tried to enter candidacy uh, through the Caribbean Senate, I ran into troubles um, with the process. I believe they, the part of uh, with my sexuality, with people. At the time, I was not out, but I think it had to do with the assumptions people were already making about me. And it was a very painful process because I'm a son of the Caribbean Synod, I'm a son of the Lutheran Church in Puerto Rico, and my yeah. dream was to go to study in Philadelphia and come back and be a pastor in Puerto Rico. Yeah, sure. Um, little did I knew that the Spirit had other plans. I was not even initially interviewed um, there, so I, uh, I took my paperwork and I took it to um, uh, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Synod in 2011, a church there, University Lutheran Church, uh, downtown in Philadelphia, received me as a member and the pastor, without knowing me, filed my paperwork. Um, he, he took the good word of, uh, of my professor and mentor, Nelson Rivera, that I was a good guy and that I was not a serial killer nor anything like that, nor that <laughs> the name of the church, that there was no problem in just filing the initial paperwork uh, with it. And, and in SIPA, I, I really did not have any trouble with my candidacy and my, sec and my sexuality um, whatsoever. It was not even an issue. It was not even a question. It really never um, came up in that sense. What I what, what was problematic for me was the loneliness of the coming out experience mm. while having theological education. Because it comes the question of, you know, I just came out. Is it okay for a seminarian to go to a gay club? Is it okay yeah. for a seminarian to have a boyfriend? Is it okay for that boyfriend to come visit me? Well, what other people are thinking when that, when that person comes visit me? Should we leave the door open? Should we close the door? Is it okay to go on a trip uh, with my gay friends? Is it, is it not? How do I, uh, do I come out in, in every opportunity I have every time I visit a church? Do I not come out? And th that was the tricky part. Of yeah, it. Sure. And the reality is that there were no, and there are no guidelines for it. There are no guidelines um, for it. And, and the church, has traditionally not been a safe space to ask those questions. Right. You know, because the way we have done candidacy, especially with LGBTQ candidates, is it's almost a punishment system at times. And I'm not saying that that was the way that SIPA did it, but it is the way that, as a candidate, you perceive it. That should I go to the city and say, hey, I got a boyfriend. Is it okay if he can visit me? Right. I don't think anybody in the right mind will go ask that question to no. the center because it's not a safe space to ask that question. Right. Yeah. Right. But to whom can I ask those questions? And it became, you know, that under the rug 
navigating of it of having colleagues that, that had gone through it before me and, and given me advice um, on it. And, and then it's, it's almost like a secret society that LGBTQ candidates have to do in each seminary in order to safely explore their sexuality and what does it mean and come into their identity. For those who are in seminary now or considering going to seminary in the future who are either questioning their sexuality or want to come out do you have advice for them or resources? Where should they go? What should they do in order to feel safe and to be able to live as God created them to be? Absolutely. Three words. Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries. It is a nonprofit organization across the ELCA that is dedicated to the full inclusion of LGBTQ uh, people into the life of the church. And it has a group called Proclaim for publicly identified LGBTQ um, members of the clergy and seminarians. And they have a plethora of resources um, that were helpful to me, that told me that I was not alone in this struggle, that there were people from all over the country willing to pick up the phone and have a conversation with me, that were able to welcome me just as I am, that was safe to ask the questions, nice. that they were not gonna write a letter telling, hmm, Bishop so-and-so, I think Angel is engaging in XYZ activity due to his questions, but I could just be open right. about, about right. coming out into my identity. And that has to do in part with the fear that our church, even our liberal ELCA, or so to speak liberal, has of speaking and talking about sex openly. You know, our, our social theology is kind of like in the 21 century, all sexual and moral and ethical and sexual ethics are in the 17th century. And to me, that's, that's, and of course I can say that now that I'm an ordained minister and I'm in a publicly accountable monogamous same gender relationship, but visit any seminary, have honest conversations with the seminar, talk to anybody that have been in seminaries. And you will see the, that there is a difference between what this church says it teaches and believes and what everybody does. Right. Right. And I'm not in a and I'm not in a cult to just, you know, throw the bad water with the baby, but shouldn't we enter into a deep reflection onto what does it mean the words that we that we use in our discipline books? Why do people get defracted from having a boyfriend over and spending the night and nobody gets defracted for not recycling? They're both in the same book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody gets defrocked for um, not taking care of our bodies. Why yeah. would we don't get defrocked from uh, for other areas of our life in which we're not whole? No, that's definitely true. And and sometimes even we are praised if we're not taking care of ourselves because oh that person's just working so hard instead of really treating ourselves as you know we are commanded to by God. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and that, and that has to do with the with the wholeness of the person. And it's about our bodies, it's about we being created in the image of God. And what does that mean for us as public leaders? Right. When I take care of my body and I take care of, of, of my wholeness, that also proclaims the gospel to a community. Good news, your body is created out too in God's image. Good news, there is a chance and there is an alternative. I wanna thank you, Angel, for your reflections on uh the Orlando massacre. Uh, we were at Senate Assembly when it had happened. Your first reflection was was to our clergy group 
on Facebook just about how you felt. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just how how you felt at a loss of of not changing the worship service that we were uh, a part of as far as the, the closing worship experience to not reflect on it or have a voice for it or or speak out of, about it and just just feeling um, maybe lost at that point. And then to turn around with uh, two very powerful blog posts uh, about um, you know what it means for you as as a leader in the church what it means to proclaim the gospel, what it means for you as a person, and uh, lifting that up as a real reflection that uh, so often gets overlooked and in a way that engages that uh, reality of the the terror of that horrible event uh, in a way that was just very real and very human and very faithful. I, I thank you for those reflections. They were really quite wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And it was a very painful situation for me. In all honesty, I woke up that morning and I turned on my TV and I saw that there was some shooting in Orlando. And I had to confess, I didn't care much. And I did not care much because, because I live in the United States and I'm just used to it. And part of me is just numb. You know, 10 people were dead somewhere. Well, that's just what happens. They're shooting right. squad every week. I'm not even surprised by it. Oh, there was some, some people dead in, in, uh, in, in Orlando. Oh, that's the other side of the country. Just Let's just include a prayer into it. And I don't want to say that we clearly we are humans. You know, I, I cannot know everything. And I yeah, cannot right, know, exactly. you know the, the magnitude of everything. But, on, but at the same time, my job, our job is to know and to respond. And I think that oftentimes we are very quick to excuse ourselves from that responsibility. And we could have done better. And we need to do better in the future. A room full of clergy people was not aware of the public pain that at that time was happening. A room full of clergy people, including young people. A room full of clergy people that, like me, were very aware of social media. You know, that we're all over right. the internet, in Twitter and all that. And we just... We were not aware. And we need to reflect on why. That on the one hand. On the other hand, it is too easy for us as, the, as a church to excuse and to just look away from our complicity in this type of situation. This was a hate crime, among others, to LGBTQ and Latinos. And the church, our church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, has fostered for decades theologies, and ideals and ideas that promote hate towards LGBTQ um, people. Our conscience is at time bound towards hate, and I'm tired of it. I am tired of having to tolerate and explain and make room for hate. How long? How long are we gonna? How long are we not gonna admit that our silence kills? Yeah. That our lukewarm attitudes have a repercussion on the life of others. That the rhetoric of hate and the rhetoric of silence is having an impact on the life of my neighbor. You know, uh, uh, perhaps at the beginning of the ELSA, about two decades ago, we as a church came together and we asked forgiveness to our Jewish siblings because our theological tradition had and, and our positions had an impact on the life of their ancestors. And I yearn, I, I look forward to the day in which we can come together and also ask for forgiveness because our institutional positions and our theologies have had a negative, a 
still in repercussion in the life of LGBTQ people in the in the in this country. Do you think we can get to that day? And if so, what will it take to get there? I think so. I think we can get to that day. I think it will take, if I'm honest with you, politics. Yeah. It will take a it will yeah, take a campaign. It will take a campaign. It will take people on the floors of their um, Senate Assembly. It will take some bishops to retire. It will take some of the current um, uh, bishops to go away. It will take some clergy, some current people that are serving in congregations today um, to retire. But the most important thing that will take is faithfulness to the gospel. Yeah. And it will take us to, the, to take a stand and decide that we either stand in with justice or not. And, um, and to me, this is no longer a gray issue. Uh, uh, nor is an area in which we can have two or three minds. People are dying. So while we make up our mind, people are dying. Families are being ripped apart. Mothers are, and fathers are throwing out their kids into the streets. Teenagers are committing suicide. And we just can't keep being silent to this. Because we become complicit. And we have been complicit. And as long as we're complicit, our hands, our vestments, our pulpits are staying with the blood of these martyrs. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I know for Joe and I both, since we started following the decolonized Lutheran movement, just having some reflection on our own, just what the cost of silence is, having the luxury, both of us, of being part of the majority group, uh, it's it's easy to say, oh, that's not my issue. I'm supportive, but kind of. And and I know we both have had some, some pretty serious reflection about what that has meant and what it means moving forward, uh, one, to repent of that, and, and secondly, to just say, no, we need to be allies and adopters of, um, uh, of being advocates. I, I appreciate what you're doing and your, and your voice very much. It's easy when you're part of the majority group to feel like, well, I don't need to say something because somebody else will. And what I've been learning in my own reflection is, is just how, how wrong that is. It just doesn't help anybody, actually. And I thank both of you for engaging the conversation because that is the hard part and that is the, what I want the most, that we can have the difficult conversation without anybody leaving the table. And right. that this is, a, this is a difficult conversation, that tears are going to be shed. And in the process, because of our ignorance, we may even offend each other. But if we claim to be a family in Christ, well, it's just like a family. Sometimes I don't want it and I offend my husband. Right. <laughs> sometimes, I say, sometimes I'm a jerk to him. Sometimes I am not nice to him. But he just doesn't take his stuff and goes away. But we keep walking together. And then, and then in the same way, sometimes he's a jerk to me. And, and, we, and we forgive each other and we love each right. other. So if we are going to be the family of God in this world, if we're going to be the body of Christ here, we ought to be able to have the difficult conversation. And nobody likes when their partner says, hey, we need to talk. <laughs> nobody, likes, that. nobody likes the hey we are gonna talk tonight you know nobody likes that but he but but it needs to happen if we want the relationships to mature and to get to a better place right and we need to continue to encourage one another in advocacy for each other and that is something that can be hard because like jeff said you know we can sit back and say well what are we gonna do what am i gonna do but uh, we need to look for opportunities to engage in conversation, to support each other, to mess up, like you said, to mess up and then to forgive each other and continue to walk with one another. Um, because I think you are right. It is time because people are dying. People are feeling excluded 
and there's a there's a voice out there that is representing the church, not necessarily our church, but they're representing Christianity saying, no, you are not welcome here. But that's not what God is saying. God is saying, yes, you are welcome here. You are loved. And we need to bring that voice to the table and have people experience that and hear that voice. Theologically, I mean, if we really profess that God has created this world and loves it, and will go to whatever means necessary, including death on a cross, to redeem it, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of little minor things, but we get so caught up in them because we can't quite fathom what grace and mercy really is. And man, we just, <laughs> if we'd listen to our own message, maybe it could sink in a little bit. But And, and that the gospel has consequences. Right, and that when absolutely, take- absolutely. When we take this call, we uphold that we're going to be public ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that means that we're going to publicly stand with the oppressed, with those who suffer, and with the message that God is doing something new. The kingdom of God has come near to us. And that may have a consequence. And part of our fear that the more I talk to people, a big part of our fear uh, is not only I don't know what to do, it's also I'm afraid of losing money. Yep. Yeah, right. you know, I'm Absolutely. afraid of losing yep. my job. You know, it's like, this is the only thing I do. This is the thing I do the best. You know, this is the thing that brings joy to my life. So if, I, if suddenly I lose my job for this, that means I cannot pay my debt. I can't pay my apartment. I can't pay my car. It's, there is a financial issue here yep. and a financial consequence here. But at times, we need to trust that God will provide for us. And that is hard because... Well, I'm a Lutheran, so I know that my natural inclination is that I don't want to trust God. <laughs> I right. really don't. I really don't. No matter how many times God proves God's faithfulness, I just don't want to trust it. That's right. I want to trust myself. I know better, right? Right. That's what we tell ourselves anyway. Yeah. I mean, Luther's great question, what's your really? What's your God? You know, that what you trust most. And, and do we trust God? We need God's word to to smash in on our lives all the time and bring us to a new place. Absolutely. And in that new place conversation, perhaps a way forward that I keep uh, talking to allies like both of you is to, to say we are, gonna, we are not going to participate in it anymore consciously. You know, and as a clergy person, I participate in an institution that is oppressive by nature. You know, I participate in the in the church, and I'm a Christian, and I'm a male, and all that. But consciously, I have the option to, as many times as I'm able, opt out of it. To say, you know what? I am not tolerating the joke anymore. Right. You know, I am not upholding, you know, or just being silent when, uh, when people say the, the side comment um, anymore. I am going to seek opportunities for LGBTQ people to speak and not only to be listened, but to hold positions of power. Last night, I participated in another podcast, and I was saying how it, at times, you know, it's like this tokenism that happens in our church. You know, we, we LGBTQ leader, we look very good. You know, it's like, oh, what a liberal church. We look good in the Living Lutheran magazine. We look good in the posters. We look good in the TV ads. But why are we not so press, so much present in the church councils? Where are we in the in the church-wide structure? Right. Where are we on the synod councils? Does the does LGBTQ people count as the diversity count for delegates, as minorities? Yeah. You know, 
And those are the questions because ultimately it's about the distribution of power. Mm -hmm. And one thing is to say we're willing to open the conversation so we can listen, but at the end is are we distributing the power or not? And that's when it becomes difficult. That's when it becomes difficult, yep. Yeah, we don't want to give away the power. Right. That's when the real disturbance begins. (laughs) So the transition, but maybe not. Uh, How does this translate into the, the mission start that you're doing? Uh, the the new ministry that you're trying to get going and and the people that uh, you're welcoming into the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for asking me that question because it has a big impact. As a gay person, I had to ask myself at the very beginning, especially working with Latinos, how do I come out? Do I tell them to come and I kind of like hi Zach and don't come with my husband? And then eventually I have like a come out but that's not truly who I am anymore because I decided one day that I was going to be out. So part of being out is that I don't have to come out anymore. From the beginning, I have been clear on my identity that when you come to Santuario Luterano in Walton, you find a religious community deeply rooted in traditional Latino spirituality. So we have Holy Mass and we have the Virgin of Guadalupe and vestments and all those things everybody knows I like. And, <laughs> and and processions. And you look you good, know. too. Well, let's, yeah, let's, I know. Not, let's be careful about that. Yeah. You know, I, I just look ex- I know. So, um, yeah, right. But, but that we were also going to be inclusive. And we're going to be inclusive to those that in Latin American spirituality have been traditionally in the margins. The single mothers, the divorce, and the LGBTQ people. So to give an example of that, every Sunday when it is the time to make the invitation of communion, I spend about three or four minutes saying it and repeating it almost as a catechesis, that we're welcoming everybody to communion, but that our everybody means divorce, LGBTQ, single mothers, and people that think they're the worst sinner in the world. And that this is not, this is not, this is a non-negotiable of this new community. This past week, as a result of me publishing on the Huffington Post, I received some hate mail, hate emails and, uh, and messages through Facebook, one of which I published, the most tame of them. And yesterday was Father's Day, and in Spanish I go by Padre, which right. means father. Right. So members of, of my parish before worship uh, at modu proprio decided that they wanted to pray for me. And they told me right before the Mass that they were standing by me, that they feel proud of the work we're doing in Waltham. And that... God has sent us there for a reason. And I believe that. Contrary to to what I myself even believe, what I have found in the Latino community is welcoming people. People that 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 don't care about sexual orientations anymore, that that understand the diversities. And that are sick and tired in part of being characterized as people that are too old fashioned or that have a different set of values. And I'm not saying that. Um, machismo and homophobia are not present in the culture. What I'm saying is that there is a breath of new air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are people that that happily come and leave their children in the church with me uh, for uh, uh, for catechesis on on Tuesday nights. And to me, that that is those are gospel moments. Those are gospel moments. There are people that trust this ministry, and that for whom a, a gay Latino priest is nothing new. But on the contrary, it is good news. For those who come this uh, two Sundays ago, I had also the chance of doing my first gay wedding. Two Latino men 
um, young men getting married, and they had their dream. They they were both very religious, and part of their dream had always been getting married in the church, and they they thought that was impossible. But no, it is. It is. Right. It is. Yep. It is, and you can have it without the shenanigans, and you can even bring the flowers to Mary, and we can sing and do all the things, you know. <laughs> so that's that to me is the, the the most the most important thing that from the DNA, this new community will, is inclusive. And it's specifically a ministry geared towards Latino people. Yes. And are you? Yes. Is there is there a lot of education that needs to go into that as? far as what is the Lutheran Church here in New England? Nobody knows about the Lutheran Church. <laughs> Nobody knows about the Lutheran Church. The first thing they need to know is to learn to pronounce it. Okay. It is very evident for them that this is, uh, as we say in Spanish, this is a monster that's very different to the Roman Catholic Church, although it's related. And the way that Latino Lutherans have communicated that in the United States is that we are a Catholic tradition of Lutheran confession. That if you come to our worship, you will see Catholicity all over the place. There is a mass and there are vestments and there is the Virgin Mary and there is there are prayers and forms and liturgy and all those things that are traditional of Anglicanism, Roman Catholicism, and Lutheranism. Yet in our confession, we are evangelical. We are Lutheran. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about God being in the less expected place, the theology of the cross. It's about the reading of scripture and a way of seeing the world that is colored by long gospel. Mm. Asking what God wants from me and what God gives me. Yep. And that makes the difference. So when they come to it, and, and uh, I joke about it, I say they first need to, to spell the word um, Lutheran. And once they do it, they call it, oh, yeah, is that, is that church? That's like the Catholic church, but a little better. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I, and I laugh about it. I always say, you know, I say, no better, different, different. And, and in that sense, I am, I, I am also surprised because I thought there was going to be more resistance. But what I have found is, is a thirst for a message that's different, that, that is liberal, that, you know, that that voice has been missing in the Latino communities in our areas. Yeah. It's either Roman Catholicism or evangelical fundamentalism. Yeah. And with us, you get you you get like you know you get the Commonwealth, the best of two worlds. <laughs> yeah. You know the Bible, the uh, the spirit of the Evangelical and Pentecostal um, traditions, the uh, and the, the the forms and the rituals of the Roman Catholic Church that we have inherited from the Church in the West. What can uh, Sanctuario in Waltham teach the other congregations in the New England Synod? I think that participation. Is life giving to the church. When you come on Sunday mornings to Santuario, you see two things. On the one hand, we're in the very early stages, so it is very pre-centered. You know, it is very centered around my, around what I do and the things. You know, I'm leading people and all that. Uh, and everybody comes. You know, I'm part of why they come is because well, they like me. You know, it's a, um, it's natural in this process of developing a new community. And if you come at 5 p.m., there is chaos. <laughs> Lots of people looking what to do. So on any given Sunday, we have two readers and about 10 acolytes. <laughs> and nice. there are children and people of all ages serving as acolytes. And there are people bringing the communion, and there are people collecting the offering. 
and there are people cleaning afterward, and there are people spontaneously bringing a meal um, to it. And they do this without having to put their names in a calendar, without um, having to get a sign-out sheet or, so, or doing some um, paperwork. They just do it. This past Sunday, a girl came to me and said, I've never done it, but can I help you in the altar? I said, yes. You know, and the, and the challenge is that, yes, yeah, sometimes it's a very beautiful choreographic mass, and sometimes it looks like a circus. But in both times, we praise the Lord. Yep. <laughs> and I think we cannot... Into that. And, and in that sense, we cannot be afraid of chaos. You know, people, people that know my, my uh, liturgical pieties will be surprised of the things that happen at 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the things that fall, the things that are forgotten, the things that just... We don't do because it's it's truly the work of the people. And sometimes we need to give up our aesthetics in order to let a breath of fresh air of people participation into the life of the church. And I believe in that. If not, our worship becomes stiff. Yeah. And who likes that? You'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, and yeah. how about how about for the whole church? I mean, what what kind of hopes do you have uh, for the whole church, either through uh, you know your community or your leadership, or just in general? What what kind of hopes do you have for us as the body of Christ? I hope that we are able to speak boldly. I hope that, um, and I speak in this case first to the Evangelical Lutheran Church, that we stop being afraid of losing people that we stop being afraid of our, our, our debt that will happen tomorrow and the debt of denomination, that when we start living as we believe, the Spirit will do the work, and that the church belongs to the Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit gives growth to the church wherever it pleases the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit is not pleased to, it will simmer it down. And that I believe it is... It is worth it, and it is worthy to to stand with those who suffer, to stand um, with the oppressed, and to empower them um, to speak and to lead us. Not only to speak, but to lead us, to give them positions of leadership and of power, of decision-making power in our midst. And for the wider church, that we can have a conversation, a conversation that is honest about what we are really afraid to lose, and at the same time, of what we can learn and bring from those who are different than us. Let it, be, let it be the minorities in our midst. Let it be the people that don't believe like us. Let us take example of one another. I take, I am ashamed at times, and I feel whole, uh, wholly envious, as Christopher Stendhal used to talk about. Um, when I see the, uh, my brothers and sisters and siblings in the Episcopal Church and how their bishops take stands against homophobia, and there is my conference of bishop in the ELCA doing lame statements weeks later, you know. And uh, and there are and there are the letters from our um, uh, presider bishop saying lots of words without really substance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So how can we start speaking boldly and not be afraid? We are following Jesus Christ, and truly, that only leads to the cross. Yeah. But after the, but after the cross, oh, I believe. There is the light and the resurrection. Yes. Amen. 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 And I get on fire with these topics. <laughs> no, definitely. Start... And that's what we need. That's what we need. We yeah. need that prophetic, impactful, excited voice in, you know, challenging us and encouraging us to really 
take that stand that's needed in our church right now and and to really help the church move forward. Um, it's, it's just thank you so much for the work that you are doing and the inspiration that you give so many people. Thank you so much for that. And thank both of you, um, because the easy thing is to ignore these issues. You can talk about whatever, whatever it pleases you in your podcast. <laughs> Uh, you are the boss and you could take easier issues. You can take issues that, that are as important, but that don't deal with the, with what right now, again, is an issue of death and life. And I thank you for being bold in that. Um, and for standing with justice and for walking with us. Thank you for walking with us. Well, thanks for taking the lead. And uh, it's our pleasure. Definitely. And for those of you who are out there who are listening to this podcast and, and want to know more, please leave a comment in the section below uh, our blog post on our website, twobaldpastors.com, and and we can get you in touch with Angel and, and his ministry. And if you want to connect with us on Facebook, you can on facebook.com backslash twobaldpastors. But we thank you for listening and joining us today. Again, my name is Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And we are the Two Bald Pastors, helping you connect your faith with your life. Have a great day, and be blessed. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo, and someone's on the phone. All right, let's start that over. I unplugged my phone. We'll, we'll, we'll hold. Operators are still <laughs> Uppers, call now. <laughs>